Today's reading is the whole of the fifth chapter of Genesis. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kinnon. After he became the father of Kinnon, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kinnon had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kinnon lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kinnon lived a total of 910 years and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. I heard Eleanor applauding you for those names well read. So, 
Well done. And the numbers as well. We'll come to that in just a moment, but let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak through it, even through parts that we're not quite sure what to make of. We pray that this morning you would help us to make sense uh, of this and to uh, see how it applies to our lives. So we ask for your spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. The first emperor of China. Now, you may have to help me with the pronunciation, but Qin Shi Huang. Qin Shi Huang. Anybody know if I'm saying that rightly? Okay, I'm getting some nods. Qin Shi Huang was the first emperor of China, and he wanted to live forever. So during his life, Qin Shi Huang, he conquered the, the six warring states that were part of this uh, area and united them as one, and he wanted to stick around and enjoy it forever. And so a few years ago, some documents were found from his era uh, that he had put out a decree demanding that people uh, uh, give him the, the herbs or the medicines or the things from the far out regions of the Chinese, the new, newly united nation, um, to give him eternal life. The search did reach to every frontier of China, even the small villages in, in the remote areas of the empire. Some villages responded that they didn't have it. They, they just said, we don't know what you're asking for, but we don't have it. Others suggested herbs from local mountains. Maybe they were trying to make a tourism industry in their region. I'm not sure. But nothing promising was found in the end. And the emperor, he wasn't known for his, his patience on these matters. Uh, apparently, he just moved on to his favorite anti-aging treatment, which was consuming mercury, which um, didn't exactly help matters in the end. Uh, at the age of 39, he died, and he was buried with his terracotta warriors, and you can go see his tomb. But of course, he wasn't the last one to carry out that sort of search, was he? Uh, I don't know if you have ever seen some of these, but every year or two, every few years, a new crop of articles pops up about um, the latest research into life-extending uh, science. The billionaires of Silicon Valley have picked up right where Qin Shi Huang has left off. Here's an excerpt from an article in The Guardian a, a few years ago. Quote, there's millions of people now who won't see death if they choose, said James Stroll, the director of the Coalition of Radical Life Extension, an organization which brings together scientists and enthusiasts interested in, quote, physical immortality. Now, funded by these Silicon Valley tech billionaires, like the founders of Google, for instance, um, companies are burning through billions of dollars every year in their aim to solve death. Experimental genetic treatments, starvation diets, blood transfusions from younger people into older people. It, just like the emperor, they're exploring all the remotest possibilities for, uh, for hope. Their belief that physical immortality is just around the corner and that scientific advances will get us there, well, that's their belief. And their goal is to live long enough 
to live forever. You know, if we just hold on for a few more years, we'll have immortality. But for all their brain power uh, and all their wealth, the, the Bible would call them fools because they failed to learn one of the uh, key stage one, one of the primary school lessons of the Bible, which we find in our reading today. They're failing year one of theology, of the Bible knowledge. The very simple lesson that the author of Genesis wants us to grasp this morning is that you are going to die. You're going to die. I don't know if anyone's told you that. I don't know if you've heard it recently, but it's true. It's made very clear in Genesis chapter 5. The opening chapters of the first book of the Bible primary school level truth, foundational. And unless we face the reality of our approaching death, we will never know how to live rightly now. We, we won't make sense of ourselves, we won't make sense of God, or, and we won't make sense of anything else. Last autumn, we worked our way through Genesis 1-4, to and we discovered there the origins of all that we see in the world that we live in. Creation, humanity, work, marriage, sin, redemption, and everything else. We saw there the the beginning of all of that. If you want to think about those sorts of things, then the the sermons are on the website. You can go back and give them a listen. It's uh, really important foundational level stuff. But here, this autumn, we're picking up right where we left off in the the sort of next unit, grade two, as it were, of of the educational program. In chapters 5 to 11 of Genesis, the focus is on one of our favorite subjects, ourselves. It's about us, uh, the state of humanity, and and what life is like in this world for us after the fall, what we are like. And although we'll look at the details as we go along, I think the overarching point of those chapters, chapter 5 through chapter 11 of Genesis, is this. We cannot help ourselves. Over and over, we're going to see that lesson coming back. We cannot help ourselves. That is to say uh, that humanity is profoundly without hope. We, We cannot make eternal dwellings for ourselves. We cannot make a lasting name for ourselves. We cannot... Uh, even improve ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. And these chapters are meant to drive that truth home to us. We cannot help ourselves. Yet we live in an era with an incredible unearned confidence that we can help ourselves and that help is just around the corner. With the right help. We, we want to believe that the right diet, the right education, the right spouse, the right this, the right that, life will be great. You know, walk into any bookstore, any bookstore, and you will find walls of self-help books that promise this is the ticket to changing your life. Look at any advertisement, whatever the product might be, the message is the same. Uh, This is what you've been hoping for, the personal trainer, the holiday, the therapy, the medication, the new phone, the new flat. Here is your ticket to the life you've been dreaming about. Here it is. The low, low price 
of eternal life, of joy. But ultimately, and most profoundly, these chapters show us that we cannot help ourselves. If there's going to be real meaning, real hope, real redemption, real salvation, real satisfaction in this world, it has to come supernaturally from outside of us, because it's not here with us. And that's the point we see here. As we read chapter 5, we are confronted with the relentless monotony of death. Lizzie, you read very capably, but I guess none of us could have missed the relentless monotony of it, right? Some of you may remember from our time in Genesis last year that the author organized his material into sections, right? He didn't use chapter numbers. He didn't use headings in his writing. Rather, he signaled his transition from one section to another with a key phrase, a phrase that we find here in verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. And we find that phrase, this is the written account of so-and-so's family, uh, about ten times throughout the book of Genesis. And this is the beginning of chapter 2. We have the prologue in in chapters 1, 1 through 2, 3. Uh, Then we have the first chapter in Genesis 2, 4 up to uh, the end of chapter 4. And now we have the second chapter. In chapters uh, 5, 1 through 6, 8. In 6, 9, we then see the, the next chapter beginning when it says, this is the written account of the family line of Noah. And we'll pick up the story with Noah. So from, uh, in this section, a whole chapter of this book that this author is writing uh, is filled with what? What's it filled with? A relentlessly monotonous genealogy. It's important enough to take up a whole chapter with just a few key exceptions. The the genealogy is so boringly predictable. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. And so on. Now, most of us would skip over these sections of the Bible when we're reading it, but I think it's worth asking, why is it here? Genesis contains some of the most brilliantly memorable stories that humans have ever read. The stories, um, we can all list so many of them. The the author was not a bad writer, uh, but he included this. This formula, over and over again, he lived... So many years before he fathered so-and-so, and then he had other sons and daughters, and he lived this many years, and then he died. He lived, he fathered, he died. He lived, he fathered, he died. Couldn't he have included at least one or two interesting antic- an- an- anecdotes? There we go, thank you. Anecdotes along the way. You know, like Enosh invented beer, and he was the most popular man in town. That sort of thing, right? Or, or the first guy that to, to craft a canoe or to, uh, to build a, a wheel or, or whatever it might be. But he doesn't. He doesn't spice it up. So what's he trying to tell us? Why is this here? Well, it seems to me the monotony is the point. 
put aside the, the peculiarly long lifespans. And if you want uh, to hear about that, you can ask a, a question, and we, we can talk about that later. I won't go into that at the moment. Uh, I don't think there's a satisfying answer for it, but I can tell you what I, I know uh, if you ask about it. Put those lifespans aside for the moment and just notice the pointlessness of it all. Hundreds of years of friendship and work and family and enjoyment and creativity and sadness and triumph summed up in a name and a, a, a few numbers. And then he died. Like a name on a tombstone. Born 1960, died 2000. 21. And that's the reality of human life, isn't it? Everything we do and experience and feel, everything that seems so important to us right now, in a hundred years' time, if anyone even remembers we existed at all, it will be Lucas Durant, born 1985, died 2030, right? And if you don't believe it, well, I, I wonder how many here know the name of a great-grandparent. You know the name of a great-grandparent? Okay. We, we, we have somebody who knows one. How about the other seven? The other seven great-grandparents? You know five of them? Oh, you know all of them. Okay. Okay, so one person. How about your great-great-grandparents? Okay, well, you can quiz Bo on the way out today. Find out. And those are our direct ancestors. I guess most of us don't know anything about them, not even a name. Psalm 103 puts it like this. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. And already that's a bit what life in Hong Kong is like, isn't it? A person moves here to work and, and they give it their all. They put long hours in at the office and they climb the ranks. They become respected by their peers. And then they move away or they retire and a few weeks later it's like they were never even there. They're gone company moves on, the, 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 new hi, the new teacher is hired, the, the replacement comes in. It's like they were never there. That's the reality. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it like this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now what a depressing fall that is from the glorious heights of Genesis 1 and 2. Do you remember? Verses 1 and 2 here remind us of that glory that humanity was created for. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. He named them mankind, and they were created. How glorious. Made in the image and likeness of God. Blessed. We were made to relate to God perfectly, to rule and to reign over 
creation together. We were blessed and called very good. And sin took everything and turned it right upside down. It separated humanity from God and it brought the curse. It leads to death. This past week, Catherine and I heard that a friend of ours in London had died of bladder cancer. And um, he was a member of our church. He was a friend. He uh, was somebody that we had many meals with, conversations where we laughed together. We watched the Eurovision Song Contest together at his house a couple years in a row. Later, we even trained to be pastors uh, around the same time. He was a gifted businessman, a clear-sighted minister. He had a great sense of humor, and now he's dead. And it makes you think, what was all of that about then? What was all the training about then? When a life that was going somewhere, it was building towards something, is suddenly cut off mid-story, what is that all about? And friends, the details will be different, but the same end awaits us all. That's what Genesis 5 is telling us. He lived, he fathered, he died. Humanity cannot help itself. And unless we see that clearly, feel the weight of that, we won't live rightly. We'll waste our lives trying to help ourselves, seeking the help from others around us. When the only help that we have hope of is a supernatural help from outside that can give us meaning, that can give us hope, that can give us a future that escapes the grave. And that's the other part of what we see in this chapter. There were three brief exceptions to the unrelenting grimness of Genesis 5. I wonder if you noticed. Adam in in verses 1 and 2, Enoch in verses 21 to 24, and Noah verses 28 to 32, and we'll pick him up next week. They give us just a hint that God is not yet through with the world that he's made, and that there is a reality outside of the life, parenting, and death of each one of us. In fact, they each show in their own way that God still holds out hope for all those who will walk with him. That's what they're trying to tell us. Uh, We've already talked about Adam in in verses 1 and 2, but you might remember before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, unlike any other creatures on earth, before the fall, they had the ability to relate to God in a sort of face-to-face intimacy because they were made in God's image. And that's what humanity was created for. And although sin um, destroyed things, sin destroyed the intimacy of that relationship, it didn't destroy the capacity for relationship with God the possibility of relationship. They were still made in the image of God. They had a God-given capacity for relationship with the Creator. And not only them, but we discover here, their offspring as well. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. 
Well, Adam was made in the likeness and image of God, and Seth was made in the likeness and image of Adam, who was made in the likeness and image of God. And so humanity has a capacity, is made in the image of God, a capacity to relate to God, still, even in the fall, even with sin. And so we have a hint that despite the damage of sin, humanity is not yet completely cut off. As people made in God's image, we can have relationship with them. And that image of God is passed on from generation to generation up to now. But eventually in this genealogy, we we read verse 21, we come to Enoch. And Enoch's story is very different. He lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Although Enoch lived a total of, uh, altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Where's the, and then he died? It's not there. It's all a bit mysterious. It isn't really clearly explained, but the contrast between Enoch and the rest of humanity is clear, isn't it? The monotony of he lived, he fathered, he died, suddenly broken. Enoch did not die like everyone else, but was taken by God. Why was he spared the judgment that fell on the rest of humanity? He walked faithfully with God. That phrase is used three times in the Old Testament. It's used here of Enoch. It's used of Noah in chapter 6. It's used of the priests in um, Malachi chapter 2. And it describes that initial intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden as they walked with him. How was Enoch able to have that sort of intimacy with God, right? Because he lives in a fallen world. He's, uh, he's sinful, presumably. Well, we find out more about that in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken... He was commended as one who pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So how did Enoch enjoy intimate fellowship with God and escape the judgment of death? By faith, right? That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us, by faith. Unlike Adam and Eve, who doubted God's goodness and rebelled, Enoch lived his life on the basis of God's goodness. And so by faith, he escaped judgment. And friends, we too are invited to walk with God by faith and escape the judgment of death. By faith in Christ, we know that death will not swallow us up. Our lives have meaning now, and we will have a sure and certain hope of eternity. Let's think about how that is. Well, because Christ was physically raised from the dead, we know that we will be physically raised from the dead. 
For those who walk with God, the story doesn't end with, and then he died. That's the cliffhanger at the end of chapter 1, but it's not the whole story. The chapters go on infinitely into the future. For the Christian, those who walk with God know that God sees how we live now, even if nobody else does. And so even if everyone on earth forgets the impact that we've had, forgets and erases our memory, uh, our ancestors don't know anything about us, God will not forget. He will remember our quiet faithfulness. He will remember our attempts to, to follow him and to honor him. And he will vindicate us against those who've mistreated us. It's not meaningless. God sees. God knows. God remembers. Those who walk with God know that rather than death having the final word over us, Christ will have the final word over us when he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You're going to hear those words if you're a Christian. As you enter into eternity, the salvation that Enoch knew, we too will know. Everyone who walks with God by faith in Christ will ultimately escape death. A life of faith matters eternally because it lasts eternally. It's not swallowed up by death. And lastly, we see in verse 28 that Noah too breaks the pattern. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. You know, seeing the tragedy of the human condition under the curse of sin and death, Lamech has high hopes for his son Noah. And in chapter 6, we find that, in a sense, he was right. We will see that Noah, too, walks with God by faith. Like Enoch, he escaped the judgment uh, because of it, like Enoch did. But we'll also see uh, what happens to those who haven't walked by faith, who continue down a, a path of uh, rebelling against the Creator God, who insist on living a life that is for this world alone, and trying to create their own meaning, trying to make it their own name for themselves, trying to uh, live just as they like, and we'll see the end that that brings as well. Um, let's pray. Let's um, speak to the Creator who offers life. Father, we are confronted by the reality of death. And not just death in general in an abstract way, but our own death that is coming. And Lord, we want to live rightly now in light of that. 
Lord, we want to walk with you like Enoch did. We know that in, by faith in Christ, we can be saved and uh, that we can enter into eternal joy with you. Lord, I pray for any here who don't yet walk in faith with you. I pray that uh, the weight of this would rest on them and that they wouldn't be satisfied until they call out to you in faith. And Lord, for any Christian here who is troubled, who is burdened, who is weighed down by um, the cares of this world, by the thoughts of uh, their own passing, I pray that you would lift them up, lift their eyes to you, and give them uh, the hope that you set before them. Make them all too aware that they will see you face to face. They will walk with you in intimacy of fellowship. And that they will enjoy uh, all that you promise to them. So I pray for each one here. In the name of Christ, amen.